It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today in London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In many places, newborns are screened for a handful of genetic diseases. But elsewhere, talk has turned to whole genome studies. That opens up plenty of treatment options, but also raises thorny questions, not least about privacy. And the red-light district called Pat Pong in Bangkok has a lurid history. But a new museum looks further than that. Before it was seedy, it was a thriving business quarter, as well as a hangout for CIA operatives. First up, though. When European leaders assembled for a summit in Brussels yesterday, what was on the agenda was a big problem that could become huge. Blockades and export bans of grains. Ursula von der Leyen, president of the European Commission, struck a sharp tone about the issue. The only reason why we're struggling now with a food crisis, she said, is because of this brutal, unjustified war against Ukraine. The crimping of Russia's output and the blockade of Ukraine's grain stocks are the biggest cause of a sudden dramatic food price rise. But it's not the only reason. In Yemen's capital, Sana'a, a tailor says that the increase in the cost of wheat is crazy. In Zimbabwe's capital, Harare, a resident says meals are going missed. But these days, you can even go for seven days without getting any meat, without getting three meals a day. And in Tunisia's capital, Tunis, a bakery owner says he can no longer work because he just can't get enough flour. Russia bears much of the blame here. That sharp shock to the global food system has caused an acute food crisis. But for plenty more reasons, that may tip into a global food catastrophe. Well, the war in Ukraine has been very damaging to the country's agricultural production. Matthew Favas is a finance correspondent for The Economist. The grain that's been harvested is stored in, in silos that the moment can't get out of the country. Usually it uses its ports to export most of its agricultural production. And 98% of its grain goes through the port of Odessa, for example. And the port is being blockaded by Russia. And then you've got the next harvest, which should be starting in June through July and August. The next wheat harvest is expected to be much smaller than usually what you would see in a normal year in Ukraine, because half of the, the fields of winter wheat, they are in the occupied parts of the southeast of the country. And then the harvest has no route to market anyway. Uh, this will have ramifications far beyond Ukraine. How so? Why, why does that have such big knockout effects? Well, that's because Russia and Ukraine are very crucial 
cog to the global food system. That's first of all because of the importance to the grain trade. Russia and Ukraine were the world's first and fifth biggest producers of grain in 2021. They're also the two biggest producers of sunflower seeds, which is used to make vegetable oil. Together, they export an eighth of the calories that are traded worldwide. And Russia also is being hampered by sanctions. And although it's managing to export quite a lot of its production, it's much costlier to, to do so for everyone involved. And the sum of all this means that prices for staples worldwide have risen by a lot. If you look at wheat alone, they're up by nearly 30% since the start of the war. So they're really near record levels at the moment. And even as we see the effects of that, it seems like things are going to get worse still. It, it will get much worse. Three months into the conflict, the number of people who can't get enough to eat, it's risen by over 400 million to something like just under 2 billion, which is a, an incredible number. And it's going to get much worse. In May, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, tried to raise the alarm. There is enough food in our world now for everyone if we act together. But unless we solve this problem today, we face the specter of global food shortage in the coming months. You've got high prices and we might actually even see actual shortages if the harvest disappoints. The World Food Programme last year got half of its wheat from Ukraine and that wheat is at the moment not accessible. And that's the reason why in May, the country director for Yemen of the World Food Programme warned about how bad this could get. You know, for us means that we're taking food from the poor and, and feeding the hungry. So we're having to make some really tough decisions about you know, who, who gets food in an environment where everybody needs it. And those are big fractions of, of the world supply of some of these grains. But can't some of that production be made up elsewhere? Well, the big problem is that the, the system itself was already fragile before it went into the war. So it's nearly at its breaking point. The number of people with access to food so poor that their lives or livelihoods are at immediate risk, it rose from just over 100 million to just under 200 million in the past five years. And that's partly due to the pandemic, which has reduced incomes, so people have less money to spend on food. It has also disrupted supply chains. Also, you know, we've seen energy prices rise by quite a lot. Shipping costs also are very high. And even before that, you had a massive swine flu episode in China, which forced China to curl a massive part of its pig herd. And most important, you had a spell of bad weather all across the globe that impacted harvest in Latin America, in parts of North America, in Russia as well. You even had snow in Brazil, which, you know, is quite incredible. So already in February, before the war, the World Food Programme was warning of famine, destabilization of nations and mass migration. So the situation was pretty dire. So it's not just the war in Ukraine that's the cause of all this. Some of this was on the cards. No, that's right. There's a real perfect storm of issues that are impacting the food system. Many of them outside of Ukraine. A lot of them are, are due to climate change. You've got India, uh, the north of India, Uttar Pradesh, and other areas which have been battered by severe winds and hail in February. And then intense heat, like a, a really supernatural heat wave in the recent weeks. So their wheat harvest is going to be down. Meanwhile, in China, which is the world's biggest producer of wheat, but you, you got floods earlier in the season, which means that this year's crop could be the worst in history, according to the government. That's a direct quote from them. 
And all of these problems are, are really bad and you can expect them to be repeated uh, probably in the coming years. This conjunction of troubles is being reflected by prices on the future markets, which basically try to predict how the prices of grain are likely to behave in the coming months. And they expect wheat and maize prices to, to stay high until the middle of next year. It's not a, a short-term solution, but what about the regions that, that aren't dealing, for example, with extreme weather? Could, could there not just be new places that, that grow some of these crops? Well, this is where we have a, another set of problems. I can sum this up by perhaps saying that we not only have a food crisis at the moment, we also have an energy crisis and a fertilizer crisis. So farms run on fuel, you know, to power the tractors, to power other machines in the fields, to take the grain to the market. But energy prices are, of course, very high at the moment. The fields need a lot of fertilizer to improve yields and to improve the quality of the crops. But Russia is a massive fertilizer exporter. So the world is, is short of fertilizer. Pesticides and herbicides also, the cost is up because they use a lot of energy to produce. So it's really hard for farmers at the moment to just plant more grain and respond to high prices because the cost of inputs is going up faster than even that of grain, actually. So we've ended up talking about things that are hard to change or will take a long time to change. What about what, what options there are for alleviating the immediate crisis? Yeah, there's a few things you, you can do. I think the first one is to reduce the amount of grain that's being eaten by animals. And that, that's really big volumes, actually. So, you know, last year, to give you an example, China imported more maize than Ukraine typically exports in a year just to feed its pigs. The downside here is that it will probably raise the cost of meat. Another thing you can do is to, to produce less biofuel and to use less of it. Biofuel is typically made using corn or other grain or it's made using oil seeds. You could use these fields to do something else. So that could make a difference as well. You could try to export more from Ukraine via road and rail. That would get you to perhaps 10%, 10-20% of what Ukraine usually exports in a year. So it's not a, a massive difference, but still it should be tried. And then what you should do is to try and, and help the countries that will suffer most from this crisis. You can help them with import financing by perhaps providing them with favorable terms. This could be done via the IMF, for example. But really, the ideal fix would be to break the, the Black Sea blockade. But that would require an international coalition. And it's not obvious that this is likely to happen anytime soon. So what do you make of all this, this perfect storm, as you call it, and, and all of these knock-on effects? I think the current crisis makes us realize that the global food system is, is quite vulnerable to not just geopolitics and, and wars, but also climate change. And I think this will prompt a rethink about first how we produce a food and make it more resilient to extreme weather events, but also how we consume it and overall make the food system more resilient and more efficient in other ways. This crisis is a potential disaster in the making, but there are clearly some lessons that we should learn from it. Mathieu, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure, Jason. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. 
The promise of genetic screening has always been clear. Read what's in your genome to learn what genetic diseases you're predisposed to get, perhaps even preemptively treat them. But reading the genomes of newborns throws up a variety of ethical questions. And as plans to scan more genes at birth become more commonplace, so do those ethical debates. So what's being discussed is the idea of screening newborn babies for lots of genetic diseases. Natasha Loder is The Economist's health policy editor. The idea of screening babies at all isn't new across North America, Europe and the Middle East. Newborns are already checked at birth for a handful of common genetic illnesses like sickle cell anemia, thalassemia and cystic fibrosis. But what we have with this new technology of whole genome sequencing is the prospect of spotting hundreds and hundreds of disorders rather than just a few which we currently look for. And the earlier we can catch these genetic diseases, the better treatment we can give and sometimes save lives. And so when you say rare diseases, what are we talking about? How many are we talking about? So the definition of a rare disease is a little bit fluid. There are about 7,000 currently known, and most of these are genetic. And the issue, though, is that because collectively these rare diseases are common, actually they affect quite a large number of people. And one advocacy group reckons that about 400 million people in the world are affected by genetic diseases. And if we're going to do better at treating people with these conditions, they need to be identified earlier and treated earlier. And so what's the state of play with trying to expand the the screening that, that you said is already going on widely? So this idea is being considered all around the world at the moment. And you can find small or medium-sized projects in lots of places. But I think one of the projects that deserves quite close attention is the one in Britain. There is a government-owned company called Genomics England, and it has in the past done whole genome sequencing of adults. And now it wants to start a pilot project and sequence the genome of about 200,000 babies. Now, it hasn't started yet, and it's spending the next year consulting about how this should be done. And this consultation has thrown up some really interesting questions about how the screening should be done and, and for what diseases. What questions are they? So you might think, Jason, that it's a great idea to test for every possible genetic-related condition, and you might as well do so at birth. And there would be some people who think like that and say, well, you know, let's just take a newborn's genome and just find everything that could possibly go wrong. Well, it turns out that when you talk to parents and actually some doctors as well, they will tell you that they don't want to know about genes for risk, say, for things like cancer or adult onset conditions like Alzheimer's. That's the sort of genetic test that parents wouldn't want to have for their children. One of the reasons for this is that parents feel that that sort of information about a child's future is for something for them to find out when they're an adult and that perhaps it's not right for parents to look into those things early on in their lives. And also, it turns out that if there's a genetic disorder for which it's uniformly fatal and for which there's no treatment, some parents also don't want to know that. And we've had this discussion before with Tay-Sachs, for example, which you can test for. It's a rare genetic disorder. And it's an absence of an enzyme that breaks down fatty substances. And then in the absence of this gene, fatty substances build up to toxic levels in the brain and the spinal cord. And it is sadly fatal. And 
some parents feel that knowing that the child is going to die very early on really ruins the first few years of their life with them when you don't know that anything's wrong and you have a time that you really enjoy. So there's a whole range of considerations wrapped up around what tests you offer. And the things like they have to be scientifically meaningful, like they have to be accurate, they have to be actionable, they have to give you useful information. And it also has to be something that parents actually want to know about. Is there not a sort of informed consent scenario in which the parents say, you test for what you like, but I only want to hear about these kinds of things? Well, that's essentially what's going to happen. And so parents will be offered this sequencing at birth. They'll be offered tests for a set of 200 or more, perhaps, conditions that have been agreed and decided beforehand are good to offer. What I suspect will also happen, though, is that parents who are interested will be able to sign up for an additional service. We'll let them know about conditions for which there may not be a current treatment, but for which a trial might come along or for which might be treatable in the future. What about the the value in that? This is a goldmine for researchers, isn't it? Well, it is for researchers, but only if they're given access to the data, and that's not guaranteed. I think we need to think about what it might be like to have your own sequence available to use within a health system. And so if I'd had my genome sequenced at birth, at any stage during my life, if I had questions that could be answered with a genetic sequence, then that would be available as a resource. So for example, if you want to go on an antidepressant, you can get information from your genome, which will tell you which ones are most likely to work. Or had my genetic sequence been sequenced at birth and then at the age of 18, I'd been handed over responsibility for this genome from my parents, then I might at that point decide to look at things like my lifetime risks of cancer or Alzheimer's or to get a personalised briefing on how to lead a healthier life and a longer life. Um, So there's, there's lots of things you can do with your genome once you've got it. Almost every time we end up talking about genetic testing, genetic information generally, the issue of of privacy comes up. Where does that figure into this debate? Well, obviously, this is an important consideration. And how the data is handled is going to depend on where it's been taken, what country, and what rules and regulations are built up around it. In Britain, parents will have to consent to the data being taken and being used for various purposes. And even if Britain keeps this data all siloed, you have to ask, well, is it going to happen in all countries that, you know, you have a genetic sequence and perhaps there's a request for research to use it, to screen it for the risks of conditions like, say, a mental health disorder? And then what if the police department wants to screen genetic sequences for a trial that they're trying to prosecute? I mean, there's all sorts of things that could happen in the future that might make that data less private than it is today once you've gathered it. But then the flip side of that is that you can't have a revolution in personalised medicine without personalised data. And, you know, if you want to participate, you have to share some genetic data. There's no way around it. So my feeling is that in well-run countries that are democratic, as long as we keep an eye on how this data is being used and we make sure that it's being taken care of, we should be fairly safe. But that may not be true everywhere. Natasha, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Jason. 
Pong is an area in the center of Bangkok in Thailand. For decades, it's been internationally famous, notorious even as a red light district. But before that, it was known for other reasons. Its uh, existence actually dates back to the 1950s, where it was the, the Wall Street of Thailand. Michael Messner fell in love with the history of the area when he moved to Thailand and became the owner of a bar in Patpong in the early 2000s. Thailand had a very liberal uh, way of entertainment, and so all these pilots and journalists and bankers, they required restaurants and bars and nightclubs. And so you had this, this perfect mix in Patpong. Then we get David Bowie coming to, to Patpong, filming a music video there. So it slowly then evolves over into popular culture and then from there into tourism and then eventually into sex tourism. In 2019, he opened a museum there to retrace the complex history of this famous district. Now it's reopened after the pandemic with a permanent collection that's sure to surprise tourists. Of course, it being a museum that is partly about the red light district, there's a lot of vintage imagery of the areas, bars, of the people who work there, the sex workers, of the katoes, the what the Thais call ladyboys, the transgenders, and of course also of the gay and fetish scene in the area. Tom Vater writes about culture for The Economist. The centerpiece of the museum is a replica of the Grand Prix, which was the first go-go bar to open in Patpong in 1969. And there, if they so wish, then visitors can enjoy a cold beer while watching dancers gyrate endlessly on a looped kind of movie on a floor-to-ceiling screen. So from the sound of it, it's, it's mainly a sex museum? No, it's actually much more than that. Um, the museum documents the entire history of Patpong, not just the last few decades. So amongst the artifacts, for example, there's a, a beautiful old wooden telephone switchboard that originated in Patpong's Plaza Hotel, which was the first in the city to offer international calls. There's a whole wall of Thai language cartoons that were published by the United States Information Agency, which feature clumsy, archaic, anti-communist propaganda. That's because Patpong is quite closely linked uh, to the CIA during the Cold War. The, the reason for this is because in the 50s and 60s, America was increasing its presence in Southeast Asia with the war in Vietnam and the war in Laos as part of a growing campaign to stop the spread of communism. So the CIA settled in Patpong, which was a booming business area at the time, and ran covert operations there for years. And I should also add that once the Cold War was done, those CIA personnel that were living and working in that area, many of them retired there and uh, kept drinking in various bars on the street. So to this day, Patpong's nights clubs and, and bars, they still mainly cater to Westerners. But um, I would say in the last decade, there's been an increasing influx of Chinese, Indians and visitors from the Middle East as well. And the area is still mainly a, a red light district? Many Bangkokians consider Patpong to be a dangerous place I would say many Bangkokians have actually never been there because it is still mainly known for sex tourism. There's no doubt about that. But since the museum opened in late 2019, university students, academics, art collectors, and all sorts of other people wanting to look at the history of the area have been 
coming there. And so Mr. Messner hopes that more people who are not after looking at the sex trade will follow and that the area might become known for its high-minded offerings as well as its hedonistic ones. I see the future of Pat Paul. There will be more art. There will be more culture. It will be more diverse. So exhibitions, independent artists, but also food and beverage to return. And so how do the locals feel about that, that change to the neighborhood? Well, Mr. Messner told me that, that some Thais were embarrassed that a foreigner opened a museum documenting parts of the country's less illustrious history. And I, I understand that. But I think overall, this is an area that is long used to, to foreign influence. And from what Mr. Messner tells me, the city and the locals are very happy about the positive changes that the museum brings to the area. And what about the museum itself? Is it succeeding? Yeah, I, I would say the Pat Pong Museum is pretty successful. TripAdvisor has labeled it a traveler's choice. I think right now it's like number eight in, on TripAdvisor for all the sites in Bangkok. And it won the Thailand Best Community Museum Award, which is a rather unlikely government honor, in uh, 2021. The museum also hosts literary readings and showcases the work of Thai contemporary artists, such as Hedek Stencil and Tawan Watuya. These are artists that are well-known in Thailand and beyond. So Mr. Messner is widening the platform of the museum. Across the road from the museum, Mr. Messner will, will open a reading room next year with 3,000 books on erotica. And that project was conceived in collaboration with the Yaski Gallery in Amsterdam, which is well-known for its work with Andy Warhol. So Mr. Messner has a lot of ambitions for this area, and the museum is, is not going to be his last project. What we are doing as the museum now, we're taking a small strip of the street and we are developing that uh, visually, content-wise, as a kind of a role model, the way we see what would be good for the entire district, for the entire area. Tom, thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Great. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.